Today, I wanted to talk with you in regards to revealing the voice of the serpent. You know, very often you'll hear people preach on how to recognize the voice of God and um, how to be led by the Spirit of God or how to receive wisdom from God. And we have all of these biblical, I assume, um, theological perspectives, not that they're all right, not that they're all accurate, but we have these different biblical perspectives as to how to hear from God. But today, I would like to specifically put my finger on the very voice of the serpent. What does the devil's voice sound like? How many of you would like to know? Yeah? All right. Well, the Bible is, in fact, our source of theology. If the Jesus you worship is not in the Bible, you're worshiping a false god. You see, the truth is many people do not actually really see their need for theology. The moment you bring up the word theology, they're kind of like, ah, I don't like theology because theology divides. Uh, people differ on so many things. And anyway, that's how you read it and that's how you interpret it. And However, somebody might respond, therefore, since they have no appetite for theology, they might say, well, Jacques, I don't need theology. Uh, all I need is Jesus. That's all I need. My response would be, well then, tell me, who is Jesus? Because the moment somebody has an opinion of who Jesus is, is the moment they have become a theologian, <laughs> right? If somebody has an opinion about heaven, about hell, if somebody has an opinion about the afterlife, that means they have immediately become a theologian. It doesn't mean that they would be a good theologian, but they would be a theologian nonetheless. I don't know if you saw it this week, but we were blessed by the very trusted Hollywood theologian Arnold Schwarzenegger, who decided to confirm with the whole world that there is no afterlife. I assume Jesus was wrong, the apostles were wrong. <laughs> All the prophets were wrong. No, Arnold, he's right. He's got no proof of it. The proof of burden rests upon the one who denies. He was asked this week, tell me, governor. He's no longer governor. I don't know why they asked with calling that. But they said, tell me, governor, what happens to us when we die? Uh, Mr. Schwarzenegger said, nothing. You are six feet, you are six feet under. Anyone that tells you something else is a liar, he says. <laughs> he knows. <laughs> liar. You see, the moment Arnold chimed in with his opinion about the afterlife, guess what? He just became a theologian. A bad one at it, but a theologian nonetheless. But one of um, our greatest theologians in the history of humanity other than the apostles and some of the early church fathers, is in fact Martin Luther, uh, who famously pointed out the very three enemies that Christians have. Now, we talked a lot about the enemies of God. We talked about who they are and what they preach and how they are attempting to silence God's truth by replacing it with a lie. But today, I'd like for us to actually zone in on your enemies. 
And Martin Luther actually defined it this way. He says, you have three enemies. Every Christian has three, and they will contend with every one of these three enemies for the rest of their Christian lives here on earth. Number one, it's the flesh, he says. Number two, it's the world. And number three, he says, is the devil. So these are the three enemies you're going to have to face off for the rest of your life. And since we live in a very volatile culture, since we live in a very, in a very confused culture where right becomes wrong and wrong becomes right, where good becomes evil and evil is viewed as good, I thought it would be important for us to look at Scripture in order to discover our theology, what we can believe, on how to deal with one of these three enemies that we have. I would like for us to look at the enemy called the world because the enemy called the world is becoming louder and louder. I don't know if you know, it's been amplified. It's almost like everybody else who has the truth is being drowned out by culture speaking and spewing so many lies. Now, when you think about the world, what are you thinking about? When Luther said, your enemy is the flesh, the devil, and the world, what was he referring to when he said the world? Now, Scripture uses the word world in many different contexts. In certain places, the word world is used to describe the creation, God's worlds. Other places, it's used to describe the actual earth, the planet on which we stand. Sometimes, the word world is used to describe all living humans. The whole world showed up. The word world is also used to describe the Jewish world or the Gentile world or the world of believers as it does in John 3.16. For God the Father in this way loved the world of believers that all the believing ones, making a distinction about who the believing world is, shall not perish but have eternal life. That is not an invitation. It's not saying for God so loved the world that whosoever wants to, decides to, chooses to, desires to. No, it's not an invitation. It's a distinction made. For God the Father in this way loved the world of believers that all the believing ones, that's a direct translation, will not perish but have eternal life. Then again, it also uses uh, the word world to describe the world system how the world operates. And finally, it uses it to describe people who have zero affection for God or the things of God. They are part of the world, that category, which is opposite and over against the category of the world of believers. So, in this prayer that I'm about to read to you, that Jesus prayed for his disciples and also ultimately for you, Jesus is about to go to the cross, give his life. Nobody took it from him. He's about to go and give it, and he's about to leave this planet and go to the Father. And uh, you will see him use the word world in multiple different ways, right in this one, in this one uh, portion of Scripture. In John 17, verse 11 and 19, it says, he says, I am no longer in the world as he prays to the Father. Now, when he uses the word world here, he says, I am no longer in the world. He's referring to a geographical place called earth. I'm no longer in the world, but they, my disciples, are in this world. And I am coming to you, Father, who is in heaven. So Jesus is praying this prayer right before the crucifixion, as I mentioned. And he's about to leave earth, go to his Father in heaven. So when using the word world here, it is referring to earth, 
Now he keeps going and he says, Holy Father, keep them, my disciples, in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have granted them, and not one of them, I have guarded them, excuse me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Talking about Judas. Verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in, these, in themselves. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Ah, Confirmation. I need one more. Two confirmations. <laughs> I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. The planet? No, people. The world has hated them because they are not of the world. Because my disciples are not of the world, the world has hated them. So here, it's referring to people who have no affection for the things of God, hates those who have affection for the things of God. He says, just as I am not of the world, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of this planet, but that you keep them from evil, from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, speaking of this world system. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world of people who have no affection for the things of God. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Can you see how Jesus uses the word world interchangeably between planet Earth, a geographical place, he uses it as a system of thinking, and then he also uses it as a category of people. So you can't just, when you read word the word world, just decide which one it means. You have to actually use exegesis in order to find out what it is the author meant when he said what he did. So our conclusion here is that Jesus is about to leave the world, the planet, but ask God the Father to protect his disciples. Protecting his disciples from what? From the hateful world. Those who hate them because they are not of the world. And if you are not part of the world of haters, let me say it this way, if you're not part of the world of God-haters, if you're not part of that category, then you will be hated by them. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us very clear directives on how to deal with this enemy called the world system. The world system. Now, we know that we ought to pray for our enemies, those who hate us, but what do we do with the world system? In Romans chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Do not be conformed to what? This world. Do not be conformed to this world, to the philosophies of this world, to the ideologies of this world, to the psychology of this world. Do not be conformed to the lies of this world. Do not be conformed to this world system. But rather, what? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In this director, the Apostle Paul, um, we're introducing two concepts to us. And these two concepts, I want you to actually see it with your eyes. The two concepts are conform and transform. Now you can see that both words have roots. Can you see the word, the root? They just, 
have different prefixes, right? So form and form. The one is con and the other one is trance, all right? Got nothing to do with what you just thought about. <laughs> so what does it mean to con form? <laughs> when you take the average, actually there is a connection, but I'll show you. When you take the average middle school, I'm asking the question now, what does it mean to conform? To conform. What is Paul talking about? Do not do this. Do not conform. What does it mean to conform? When you take the average middle schooler, high schooler, you look at that student, you will find that their goal in life, generally speaking, I'm not talking about the exception to the rule, I'm speaking about generally, you will find that this high schooler, middle schooler, is not, his goal in life is not to be humble, but to be popular. His goal in life is not to be holy, but is to be admired. You know this because, you know, the opposite is true. Nobody goes to schools like, yep, I'm going to get some rejection today. I'm looking forward to it, actually. To young people, popularity with peers usually means absolutely everything. The world gets swallowed up by this. Because to be rejected, not liked, to be uncelebrated as a young person could be earth-shattering. Now, however, the price to this popularity that young people oftentimes yearn for and they live towards which is oftentimes their goal in life, has, has a price tag to it. And that price tag is called conformity. They have to conform. Because to be popular, like say at a regular high school or middle school, you would have to become the person that everybody would accept or that everybody would celebrate or that everybody would admire. And to be accepted, to be celebrated, to be admired, would have to become, in order to become that, you would have to become um, certain things. And I, I drew up a short list of things that came to my mind. You would have to, in a high school, you would have to be cool, number one. Uh, you would have to be probably witty, likable, possibly sporty, maybe athletic. Maybe you have to be outgoing. In certain uh, subcultures, to be popular, the student would have to be sensual, maybe. Or maybe she or he has to or she has to be edgy or even criminal, especially in gang-related environments. Now, one would think that, yeah, you know, our young people are going through a lot because this is their goal. They can't, you know, deal with being rejected all day long and not accepted in society or not accepted in their family context or not accepted. So they, they're dealing, it's, it's difficult to be a young person. However, you know, you would think that young people, we eventually grow up and when we grow up and we grow older, we kind of grow out of that, right? Where we desire to be accepted or desire to be celebrated or admired or be viewed as, um, you know, cool, witty, likables, you know. However, adults don't tend to just grow out of that. I don't think adults grow out of it. 
I think you get to manage some of that. Just like you don't grow out of your flesh, but you do learn to discipline and manage your flesh. In the same way, you learn to manage and discipline your appetite for being liked. And you go like, well, Jacques, this is a really foreign thing you're talking about. This is strange because I don't think it's true. Well, I'll prove to you how true it is. Why did you take any celebrity minister and put him, in, put him on the Oprah show? And I'll prove my case. They will not stand up for what is right. They will stand up for what will make them liked. They will say what makes them celebrated and they will say what makes them accepted. Not rejected. Very few. Vody Bakum can always trust what his response is going to be. John McArthur, you can always trust their responses when it comes to the public. But for most part, can't trust anybody else. I'm here to tell you, family, as long as you have flesh, you have an enemy. As long as you are in the world, you have an enemy. As long as you have that enemy, the temptation to conform, do not be conformed, but the temptation to conform is always knocking at our doors. It is going to be the temptation for this church to conform to culture. It always has been, currently is, always will be. Oh, you guys are outdated. Sing hymns. Come on now. Be more like Bethel. <laughs> you know, be cool. You know, I was thinking about like getting a tattoo in my arm. I don't know, Tina, can I? <laughs> so when I ask you guys to rise and worship. <laughs> I can do, I surrender. I'm thinking about how I can make this all happen. <laughs> Okay, most of you don't like that kind of humor. <laughs> you should just watch more like popular worship artists and you'll know what I'm talking about, right? There will always be, as long as we have these enemies, there will always be a knocking on the door for you to conform more and more to culture. You know, I'll explain it to you this way. I saw this when Elon Musk actually posted this and he said, you know, um, he says he's conservative, uh, but he never used to be. He used to be liberal. He says, the only problem is I actually never changed anything I believed. It's just the fact that I used to be in the liberal box, but now everything has moved left, left, left. Now the conservatives are believing what the liberals used to believe, right? So if you just stay the same, you're going to eventually be the most conservative person in the world, no matter how liberal you are. <laughs> what are we going to do? All I'm telling you is that you're going to have to put a stake in the ground and not conform. And forget, forget the political realm, not conform, but conserve the very directives given to us by the Lord, because that is your great commission to go into the, all, all the world and preach the gospel, but teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us. That's the, God, that's the Great Commission. Teaching everybody to obey all that Jesus has commanded us.
So that, that knock on that door is constant because you have an enemy and you live in that enemy called the flesh. And that flesh lives in the world, which is your other enemy. So this deception, people think will pay off. That's why people will consistently conform because it makes them more popular. It gives them a bigger tent. Uh, they keep on moving and conforming and conforming and conforming and conforming because it makes them more celebrated, uh, makes them more acceptable, more popular. However, just like the snake sold Eve the forbidden fruit in the garden by using deception and seduction, so also seduction or seductive powers of this world is for you to conform to become like it, for you to think like the world does, for you to act the way everybody else does, to believe what everybody else believes. Now, Scripture clearly, of course, tells us that it was the serpent that spoke to Eve and deceived her. My question is, how do we recognize the voice of the serpent in our day? Where is the serpent speaking today? Where does the worldly pressure come from that pushes you to conform more and more incrementally, systematically conform? Where is this pressure coming from? What does this pressure sound like? You see, the answer to the question is found in a German hybrid word, two different German words that were smashed together to create a meaning, and the word is Zeitgeist. You may have heard of this before, Zeitgeist. The, the word Zeit means time. The word Geist means spirit. Therefore, Zeitgeist really means the spirit of the times. Zeitgeist is the term coined that articulates the spirit of this age that we are in. As the world consistently pushes the church, believers, and the culture to conform further and further towards debauchery, uh, that spirit that calls the culture further into darkness is, in fact, the spirit of this age. It is the zeitgeist or the spirit of, this of the times or the spirit of the age that deceives us to conform to the world system. Therefore, as a Christian, the zeitgeist is, in fact, your enemy, your world. He is the serpent currently speaking in your ear. I couldn't explain this to you until I first took four weeks to explain to you philosophies that, are, that have elevated itself against the knowledge of God who now stands opposed to the knowledge of God, therefore enemies of God, and you and I have been called to pull down those strongholds, those opinions, and those thoughts that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. You and I have to pull them down. How do you, how do you, how do you, how do you destroy a lie? By replacing it with a truth. Where do you find the truth? In Scripture. And so this is how we destroy these enemies. But I couldn't explain to you this voice of the serpent until you first understood 
the philosophies, the lies that have been told. So as a Christian, the zeitgeist is therefore your enemy. The zeitgeist is in fact a serpent in your ear. Now the Apostle Paul speaks about this when he says for us to not conform. However, Christians have misinterpreted the Apostle Paul's warning for generations. When he says, do not be conformed to this world, what do you think Christians for generations and ge generation after generation actually believes that means? So it's clear they know that Paul calls us believers to be nonconformists. You are to be a nonconformer. If you are conforming, you are not in the will of God. He specifically says, do not be conformed. Therefore, if you do conform, you are out of God's will. Can we agree on that? All right, so Christians look at that verse and they go like, ah, I got to be a, I, I cannot conform. I should be a nonconformist. However, in every single generation, the church has misinterpreted what Paul meant when he told them to be nonconformists. The church interpreted, do not be conformed to this world, by saying, by, 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 for instance, saying, well, let's make driving cars a sin then. And let's jump in a buggy pulled by a horse. Let's join the Amish. It is amazing how many artificial forms of nonconformity the church has come up with. For instance, the world plays cards. Oh, you shouldn't therefore play cards. Uh, ladies in the world wear jeans. No jeans here. Because we will not conform. Or, you know, people in the world dance to music, to a beat. <laughs> no dancing here, especially not to a beat. I remember a man who used to be a guest minister in our old church. He would always say, as a Baptist, you know, Baptist, not a lot of dance, right? He says, um, that's why it was a sin. It was a sin to, um, to have sex because it leads to dancing. Now, a lot of dance is so bad. <laughs> but no, Paul is not calling us to nonconformity in the way that the Amish interpreted or most many Baptists. So let's see what Paul meant by it. How many of you would want to know how to not conform and what not to conform to, right? Well, the word conform also has two words, a compilation, con and form, which really means con is with, form, with form. To conform literally means to be with it or to take on the form, to take on the form of our current culture to take on the structure of our culture's predominant mindset, to take on the system of our secular worldview. That is to conform. Anybody who buys into any of the ideologies that I shared with you over the last four weeks, whether it be theological liberalism, political liberalism, cultural liberalism, relational liberalism, marital liberalism, anybody that has given themselves to any of those ideas have conformed to the spirit of this world. Anybody that has conformed to, let's say, uh, you know, I mean, we, we went through so many secular humanism, that is conforming or taking on the form of the, the, 
this time or the spirit of this time, the mindset of this time, the ideologies of this time. In other words, do not form yourself around this culture's views. Do not form yourself around this culture's mindset or their convictions or their standards or their principles or their beliefs. The moment you do this, you are conforming to this world. The Apostle Paul first warns us to not conform. And then he, warn, then he commands us to transform. The words trans and form means, trans means to go over to another form. To go above the form of this, the system of this world. To go beyond. So to go over, to go above, to go beyond, to rise higher. To rise higher than this world's form of standards. So what Paul is saying is, in a world filled of relatives, not, uh, not relatives, relativists. <laughs> now I've got to, now I've got to move past that. <laughs> Jamie, we are so excited you're here, sister. Mm -hmm. Isn't it good to see Jamie and the boys? Yeah, welcome. We miss you always. What Paul is saying is in a world filled with an ideology called relativism, said that way, where everyone lives according to their own truth, you, on the other hand, should choose to remain obedient to the truth, the truth of God, Scripture. In a world where no one can be trusted, you become the person that can be trusted. In a world where people have to constantly swear on their mother's graves, no, no, no. Your yes is your yes. Your no is your no. You can be trusted. If you said yes, then everybody can believe that that's what's going to happen. In a world of pragmatics, a world of pragmatists, where everyone does what works for them, you, on the other hand, be the person that does what is right, even if it costs you. In a world of liberalism, where people pride themselves in being free thinkers, you be the person who chooses to be the right thinker. The one who think God's thoughts after him. In a world of secularists, living for the here and the now. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. People who live as if there is no tomorrow. The secularists. In a world filled with them, you be the one who lives for the then and the there, for the eternal, for the for eternity. In a world of humanists living in hedonism, primarily living for pleasure, you choose to be the person who lives to please God instead. In a world where popularity is priority, you live to seek first the things of God. These are these pressures to conform to all of these ideas, this is the zeitgeist. This is the voice of the serpent telling you that God's, what God said is wrong and what the world is saying is right. Exactly what he did in the Garden of Eden. Just as the snake whispered in Eve's ear in the garden, so also the zeitgeist, the spirit of this age, is telling the world what they should believe and why they are 
what they are and why they should do what the world wants them to do. Now, we aren't the most perfect generation there is. but undeniably the most privileged people in the history of humanity. And even though we are the most privileged people in humanity, just like Eve, <laughs> I was going to say she's the most privileged woman that ever walked the face of the earth up to that point, but think about it. There she was living in paradise, as privileged as it gets. And even though here we are, the most privileged people in the history of humanity, yet we whine and we cry about almost absolutely everything. Nothing is good enough. We demand our rights. We relinquish our responsibilities before God, family, society. And this is because the zeitgeist family is a liar, whispering lies to this generation. And the pressure is on you. The pressure is on you to never be happy with anything. Look, did you realize when you said, I do, you were saying, I do before God, marry this broken person. Did you really think that you were marrying the only person that's not totally depraved? You literally, for, you know what, I think marriages will go so well when we start off with establishing that doctrine. Do you realize that, you know, I could be much worse than I already am? But, so I'm not as bad as I possibly could be. But man, <laughs> stop, stop expecting me to be perfect. I'm not. And stop making your whole world hang on the fact that I am perfect. Your world hangs on the fact that you are a faithful God, right? But no matter how life, life may throw things at us, but at the same time, don't forget this and don't don't let this leave the peripheral of your view no you are the most privileged people in the history of humanity it is the zeitgeist or the spirit of this age whispering in the ears of a generation you deserve to be celebrated more than what you are. You deserve more than what you have. Look, he's got four cars. You only have two. You deserve God's mercy. You deserve it. Look, he's given it to others. Why can't you have it? You deserve God's grace. Everybody should get saved. You deserve to be saved. What makes you deserve? How did you deserve salvation? How did you deserve God's grace? No, it's given. We, don't, we only deserve hell. Yet we got God's mercy and God's grace. God's grace giving us what we don't deserve. God's mercy withholding from us some of what we really do deserve. You deserve to be forgiven. You deserve to be forgiven. Because you're cute, you know. You deserve to be loved. 
Watch this one. You deserve to be loved the way you want to be loved. Oh, I know you don't realize this, honey, but you are oppressed. No, you are oppressed. Really, I am? Yeah, trust me, you're oppressed. It is the zeitgeist, the spirit of this age that says, if somebody disagrees with you, guess what? They hate you. They hate you. Oh, man. I got a lot of haters. And they live in my house. <laughs> How dare you disagree with me? It's the zeitgeist that says, Can't a man also be pregnant? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> it's like... You see, in Matthew 4, verse 11, Jesus taught us how to answer the zeitgeist. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights after he was hungry, now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Demand it, command it. You're hungry. Why can't you eat? But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. Be irresponsible. Go ahead. In their, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So here he is, again, Satan, doing the exact same thing he did in the garden. He quoted God's word. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Verse 8, Again the devil took him up on the exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. You can be famous. You deserve to be famous, actually. How about popular? Accepted, loved. Because if all, all you do is join the category of people, the world, who have no affection for the things of God, they'll stop hating you. And I guess that's one of the things I want to drive home today. If you want... To stop being hated by the world. Conform. This is the message of the zeitgeist. Just conform. Take the shot, put on the mask, do whatever you have. Just conform, for heaven's sake. Shut the doors of the church. Because you know how many people had hard feelings towards the church because we didn't love enough to close the doors? Conform. I'm telling you that this whole push towards conformity is only accelerating. It's not getting less. So verse 8 again, he took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to them, he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So here's the point. 
you're going to be pushed to a worldly form. You're going to be driven to take on a worldly form. Love this way. Close your doors. You're going to be pushed towards a worldly form of loving. Why can't two people who love be married? You're going to be pushed to agreeing to some things that are scriptural. You've got to love people. God is love. But you're going to, push, you're going to be pushed there by scripture. And that is how Satan works. But you actually need to have a doctrine, a theology of, of, of thought. <laughs> On all these issues, you need to recognize that voice. Whether it is a secularist voice, which is the here and now instead of the there and then. Whether it's the humanist voice, which means it's all about you, honey. You're beautiful. Or whether it's relativism that demands that it's true because it's true for you. Or whether it is liberalism, which means like, hey, I'm free to think freely. Yeah, but you are. You are free to think freely. But just remember, you can't get away from the consequences of the freedoms you so loved. You have to think accurately. Think God's thoughts after him. So while the zeitgeist says, all that matters is that you're happy. You be you. That you find your truth, honey. Jesus says, deny self. Not elevate self. Matthew 16, 24. While the zeitgeist says, raise your rainbow flags and be proud. Scripture replies, God resists the proud. Gives grace to the humble. You're free, but you're not free from the consequences for enjoying your freedoms the way you chose to. Let's pray. Father, today, I pray that we will recognize all these ideologies that are being crammed down our throats, taught in our schools, taught in our colleges, demanded that we believe. But Lord, that we will hear those voices speak to us and we will recognize that to be the voice of the serpent, even if that voice is quoting a verse. Lord, help us that we will be able to divide your word rightly, knowing right from wrong, knowing what your will is, and what is wise and what is foolish. In Jesus' name, amen.